0: Welcome to the August 12, 2007 podcast of Reverend Liz and Friends at the Unitarian Universalist Church of Silver Spring. There is a cricket playing the violin in my bathroom. At least that is how I imagine him. What he is really doing is chirping in the wall behind the radiator. But I know that he chirps by rubbing his wings together. And I know that he does this to call a mate to him. He has no chance. Alone as he is, in a wall, in a house of success. But he does not know this, and so he is keeping on. He has kept on for days now. He must be tired and hungry. Because his effort is futile and heroic in its persistence, because it is for love, or at least love as crickets know it, and no doubt because he is scraping away with his wings like a bow on strings, in such lifeless conditions, it has taken on a kind of crazy romance for me, the stuff of opera, the ultimate in doomed love. And for doomed love, really, the only instrument is the violin. I feel that he is playing the violin there, behind the radiator, and I am sorry for him. I would find him a mate if I could. And gently release her there where the pipes end and the baseboard begins. If she did not move, I would nudge her into him. He would not believe his eyes, if crickets can see much in low light. After all this time and effort, he would almost have forgotten why he was doing this anymore. His playing would almost have become his death song. Then changed, redeemed back into love song at the last moment. This is how I would probably behave all the time if I were God. But as I am not, instead I found him one morning on the floor, unsteady with what I took for fatigue and starvation. He was too weak to jump away from my benign hand, He tried to hide his black body in a white porcelain corner. I took him up and released him outside, where he crawled into the brittle curl of an early fallen leaf and was still. I would like to think he had the strength left to forage for what he eats, or perhaps one last aria there where he might finally be heard. How many times has this small world shown me our own magnified mortality and failed love, loneliness and persistence, ugliness and hope in terrible circumstances, fragility, beauty, strangeness and impossibility, death and ignominy. Life, again, saved, smashed, sprayed, elusive, metamorphosized, familiar, unrecognizable. I have great power over small things. I have small power over great things. I pray thankfulness that I continue to notice these things, to save what I can and to mourn what I cannot. I pray also that I hear always the imperative song of the larger world so much more impervious to my vision and efforts. I pray that I will not tire of playing my own song out to the world, that I will not give up when it is not heeded, that help will come when I am tired, and alone, and that it will be enough. I didn't just make myself cry, I'm holding back a sneeze, so. <laughs> Why have people been taught that there is a right way to pray? I believe that it is not because there is a right way to pray, but because prayer is important and therefore awkward. Have you noticed when things really matter, when they are really important to us, they feel awkward because we don't want to mess them up? This is the reason for diplomatic protocols and lined paper and lines on roads And also all the myriad books and tracts and rules created and treasured by religion. In the case of religion, they tell us how best to pray because they believe that praying most effectively matters to us. And what is effective prayer? By traditional rules, it is the prayer that comes most powerfully from you and moves most powerfully across time and space and fundamental difference to God. I spent a semester once in a class on prayer. It was one of the most complex and fascinating courses I ever took, perhaps also the hardest. We had to learn the difference between contemplation and meditation and prayer. For most of the important church leaders from origin up through Teresa of Avila and John of the Cross, John of the Cross being, of course, a disciple of Teresa of Avila, so there's one in the eye to all those who think women leaders had no historic role in shaping Christianity. But that's a topic for another sermon. Everyone we studied, Origen, Augustine, Evagrius, Dennis the Areopagite, Gregory of Sinai, and Gregory Palamas, and Gregory the Great, who first came up with the seven deadly sins, Catherine of Siena, everyone had their own take on prayer, contemplation, and meditation, and the difference between the three. Sometimes the differences were great and sometimes they were small. Often their language was potent and memorable. One of them described prayer as a cry like an arrow. The preparation for prayer being like the long bending of a great bow such that upon release the prayer would streak with the same blinding speed and direction across the distance and difference between us and God. But between many of these theologians takes on prayer there were striking similarities. Many described prayer as an extended experience of intimacy with God, one that built on itself, mounting in ways described in terms that seemed inescapably, almost embarrassingly, sexual to those of us living at a distance from vows of chastity. For these theologians, their descriptions of the proper mindset and physical attitude and expressions for prayer were not to proscribe wrong prayer, but to describe best prayer according to their experience as part of being helpful. The same way you or I might write out directions so that someone else didn't have to wander around trying to find their destination. Some of you may remember from a sermon last year that I derided a book I spotted in the Unitarian Universalist Association bookstore catalog called How to Pray Without Being Religious. I wish I'd had the presence of mind to order and read it for this sermon, but I didn't, and that's probably not a huge loss. I hope it wasn't written by a friend, I haven't checked. It's probably not a huge loss because I think to get hung up on praying unreligious prayer is to entirely miss the point of prayer. Prayer is a humble act. It's why a lot of people get down on their knees or bow their heads to the floor or look down or clasp their hands. These are all positions that acknowledge a power greater than the person assuming the position. And you may not agree, but I think that's a good thing. Because it's a true thing that there are powers greater than us, greater than any of us, greater even than all of us together, operating in our world and universe, and we but dimly apprehend them, if at all. We may not be clear on the existence of God, but we know randomness and luck, gravity, atoms, Even these all exhibit and exert kinds of massive power, and not all at our behest. The universe is benevolent and it is malevolent, and beauty and ugliness coexist, and we seek the one and we assuage the other. And frankly, I think it's silly, in the midst of all that, to bash religion. We are a religion. The Buddhist nuns and priests killed regularly by Chinese army while they attempt to honor their faith and adherence to His Holiness the Dalai Lama are religious. So is Bishop Desmond Tutu. Religion has done terrible things and wonderful things, and a religious movement or power or act is neutral. It's the nature of the movement, person, or act that gives it negative or positive value. We need to bolster our religion's spirituality fulfillment, and value in the world. Having not read that book, I nonetheless aver that prayer always has been, and always will be, a religious act. There is no way to pray that doesn't draw on some religious standard or tradition, whether it's through language or your position or content or attitude. But while I say that prayer is a religious act, I don't mean that we are or need to be clear when praying about exactly who or what we are praying to and what they look like and what their gender is and whether they can hear us and whether they care even if they hear us. It sure would be nice to be clear about those issues, don't get me wrong, and it would make our prayer a lot more specific. Dear God... I know it's Tuesday, and Tuesday is a bad day for you. But you know you always look great in that green outfit you wear. And since I'm having this situation with my children, and I know that that's right up your alley, I felt that praying to you about this, along with my donation of calla lilies and strawberries, your favorite flowers and fruit, would be worthwhile, even though they'll take a while to reach you all the way over there where you reside in Alpha Centauri. In fact, some prayer actually has some sense of that knowledge and intimacy. Early Irish prayers to the Virgin Mary often speak as if she is revered, but also a neighbor. She's someone nearby who they can and do know well. Her beauty, her compassion, her concern for her son and all humanity, her troubles. Irish prayers to her are part importuning and part self-justification and part love letter. But that's not our tradition, and it's okay, because we don't have to know where a prayer is going for it to be worthwhile. Some of you may know about a study a number of years ago that compared the health outcomes of people being prayed for versus people who weren't, and found that people being prayed for tended overall to do better. Two critiques of the study were that one, If people knew they were being prayed for, they might do better just because they had a stronger sense of being held and helped. And two, that the study itself was biased, run by and for religious people who were invested in finding a measurable value to prayer. Both critiques could be right. And so what? Is it a revelation that people should wish for proof of prayer's efficacy? Is it hard to believe that being prayed for brings comfort and perhaps not only comfort but strength to endure suffering and to recover? And there's another way to consider prayer's value. There is what we get out of it, we who are doing the praying. I'm struck by how many people have come to my office, and now you know here that there's a bunch of you, How many people have come to my office and expressed concerns about how to pray and what form of prayer is valid? A lot of people have struggled with a sense that there was a right and a wrong way to pray. In fact, it has seemed so unusually broad and homogenous a concern as to seem downright un-Unitarian Universalist. (laughs) But it's actually very Unitarian Universalist because most people's sense of what is wrong is that it's wrong to pray for what you want. Wrong to pray in traditional language. Wrong to ask God about or for personal issues. A lot of people use some form of the serenity prayer that has spread to popular usage via 12-step programs. God, grant me the serenity to accept the things I cannot change, the courage to change the things I can, and the wisdom to know the difference. If that is indeed the inmost prayer of your heart, then by all means, pray it. But here's the rub. If there's more in your heart, or something entirely other in your heart, then what about the authenticity of your prayer? Why should your prayer be any less honest than a confession to a loved one? Or a session with your therapist? If anyone or anything in fact has the capacity to hear our prayer, do we really think then that they don't know what our secret prayer is anyway? (laughs) Why are we editing our prayer? If we are in fear, why can't we pray about our fear? If we desperately long for love, or companionship, or health, or emotional stability, why can't we pray about that? Jewish tradition can be helpful here. There is a long heritage in Judaism of praying to God and communicating with God honestly, whatever that means. If that means God taps you to be a prophet and you demur fairly vigorously, that's okay. If that means God lets you down as you see it and you are pissed, that's okay. As Dr. Solomon Schimmel of Hebrew College wrote, from a biblical perspective, it is legitimate to cry out to God in anger. It is okay to protest the fact that God appears to be unjust in subjecting us to illness and suffering. In the biblical book of Job, Job expresses intense anger at God's apparent injustice when he is afflicted with horrible misfortunes. Although by the conclusion of the book, Job is reconciled with God, his initial feelings of anger at God are praised rather than condemned. Moses argues with God. Jonah sulks and complains. There are numerous models, and they are all of people in special relationship with God. They are not estranged from God. They are close, and this is part of their closeness. Of course, as Dr. Schimmel points out, deep and sustained anger at God is probably eventually unhealthy. But as we know, anger does not go away when we bottle it up. Only when we release it, express it, and work through it can we get past it. This is as true for anger at life or God as for anger at a person. So if what is in us is anger and incomprehension, let us put that in our prayers. And if God hears us, God can certainly take it. And God already knows it anyway. What about ignoble prayer? The kind that is not righteous anger or hurt but unjust prayer. Prayers that ought not to be granted and really ought not to be expressed. There's the sort of averagely ignoble prayer where we pray to become wealthy or for a Porsche or for some jerk at work to be demoted the way we know they deserve to be. And then there's really ignoble prayer, and honestly, this is worse than ignoble, this is evil. Where we might pray for something terrible to happen to someone we hate, or fear, or are jealous of, or very angry at. The distinctions matter. If we pray for a Portia, well, if that's all we can muster ourselves to pray for, then there's plenty of e- internal work for us to do, and we need to get on it, and in some other way than prayer. The other kind of prayer, unjust prayer, is what ought not to be prayed. If that is what we need to express, the appropriate vehicle is not prayer, but deep conversations and often therapy. Prayer is sacred, and it ought rightly to be reserved for requests for lifting up and saving and helping for justice and not retribution for what is offered in legend and theology by goodness or God and not evil or its legendary personification the devil. Perhaps if we picture who would answer our yearning we know whether it deserves to be a prayer. We're in far off territory now aren't we? using the devil as a spiritual tool for spiritual discernment when Unitarian Universalists are pretty clear that whatever we believe about God, we really don't believe in the devil. But I'm offering it as a useful metaphor. And it also points us back to that ultimate question of prayer. What if nothing and no one is listening? No one has the right to impose our answer to this on another. Barbara Peskin offers one answer in her writing, The Atheist Praise. I am praying again. And how does one pray when unsure if anything hears? In the world I know as reliable and finite, when time and matter cycle back and forth, and I understand the answers to so many puzzles, there are moments when knowing, is nothing. And I, this accumulation of systems and histories and repetitions, falls from me. How does one who is sure there is nothing pray? I, dark gathered around my eyes, sit in this room cluttered with my certainties, asking my one unanswered question, holding myself perfectly still to listen, fixing my gaze, Just here, wondering. My own answer is somewhat different than hers. That if nothing and no one is listening, then my prayer has a different function, but the same form. It does me good. It keeps me humble. It keeps me honest to express my yearnings. And to address them to God, even if that is my most sad and foolish act. Because no one is listening. It does not hurt me. It helps me. If God does not hear me, is not even there to hear me, it still does me good to get my yearning, my fear, my question, my grief, my anger, my joy out to acknowledge it and express it and release it to the world. Shma Yisrael Adonai Eloheinu Adonai This is what I am doing when I think when I sing the Shema, or dodi Lee, in the woods. This is what I am doing when I kneel in my study, or my bedside, to pray for myself, or my sister, or at the request of my friend for his beloved pastor who has cancer. This is what I am doing when I stand in front of you, in silence, and close my eyes and my mind fills with the faces of those I love every Sunday during our time for prayer and meditation and contemplation. This is what I am doing when I am in the car, and I drive by a roadside shrine or a dead animal, and I feel my soul send an arrow upward asking that they be at peace. This is what I was doing years ago, when I knelt at the ruins of Artemis Brauronia's temple in Greece, placed an offering under a stone at the crumbled foot of that stairway, and asked for a portion of her self-reliance and fearlessness and strength. This is what I was doing at the sacred spring at Delphi when I dipped my hands in that cool, clear water, and I bathed my face, and I drank, and I asked what I should do with my life, and I heard clearly in my head, a voiced response. My prayers are not uniform, and they are not certain, but they are honest, and they serve me well. In the end, my prayers are about speaking truth to power. Sometimes the power is death. Sometimes the power is nature Sometimes it is the turning wheel of fortune, and perhaps sometimes it is God. Surely, on my end, it is God, whether or not God is there and listening. Sometimes I am singing truth, and sometimes my truth is not universal, and sometimes I am not even certain it is mine. Sometimes all I truly seek is serenity and courage, and sometimes I seek much more. But what makes my prayers powerful, or at least meaningful to me, is that they are honest, and they are mine. They refine my sense of self, my seeking, my journey, and sometimes my answers. Sometimes they are a wish. Sometimes they are an arrow. They sustain me, and if I had a prayer about praying, it would only be that I did it better and more often than I do. If you had a prayer about praying, what would it be? So may it be. Amen.